Hello, and welcome to Tea House Talks, the Insurgent Architect's House for Creative Writing podcast series. Today, we present the final podcast from our Wisdom Council series titled Kids These Days, Strategies and Practices to Carry Forward, featuring Franz Trepanier, Richard Fung, and Smaro Cambarelli. My name is Paul Minier, and I am a research assistant for the Tea House Project at the University of Calgary. Tea House is honored to be podcasting to you from Treaty 7 territory. We specifically acknowledge the Blackfoot Confederacy, comprising the Siksika, Pikani, and Kainai First Nations, as well as the Sutina First Nation, comprising the Chiniki, Bearspaw, and Wesley First Nations. We acknowledge also the Métis Nation of Alberta, Region 3. This discussion was recorded during a Tea House Symposium called Wisdom Council in September 2019. Wisdom Council brought together a small council of senior practitioners in the arts, who are mostly Black, Indigenous, and people of color, to sit in council over three days to discuss such topics as what our communities need now, memory and forgetting, care of elders in racialized communities, community formations they've experienced, and practices and strategies that might be of use or interest in the present moment. This discussion was recorded as part of the gathering's work. Franz Trepanier is an artist and curator of Ganyan Gahaga and French ancestry. Her artistic and curatorial work has been presented in many venues in Canada, the U.S., and Europe. France was the Aboriginal curator at Open Space Arts Society in Victoria, B.C., and she is co-director of the Primary Colors Initiative, which seeks to place Indigenous arts at the centre of the Canadian art system. Richard Fung is a video artist, cultural critic, and professor emeritus in the Faculty of Art at OCAD University. Much of his work deals with the legacy of colonialism in his birthplace of Trinidad and Tobago, Asian diaspora, and the intersection of race, gender, and queer sexuality. Smaro Camarelli is Avi Bennett Chair in Canadian Literature at the University of Toronto. Her research interests include CanLit as a disciplinary formation in diaspora and Indigenous studies. In the first part of this podcast, France, Richard, and Smaro address how they relate with the panel title, Kids These Days, sharing a range of personal, cultural, and community-based experiences, and how one's positionality may influence, impact, or contribute to generational perspectives. Discussions explore intergenerational dynamics in community, culture, and academia, and the evolving nature of gathering, mobilizing, and activism. The second half of this podcast includes an open-floor discussion with the audience, where these themes are explored in depth. Now, part of being on the third panel is we have to be really entertaining to keep you awake, oh, right? No, it's, don't like, say that. <laughs> it's like we've been sitting on these hard chairs for a long time, and uh, I'll do my best to, um, to be entertaining. I think I'd like to start with a story. Well, first, I need to say I find the title strange. I thought 
Why are we asking old people what's happening? Like, what's up with kids today? It's you more know? like, you know, kids these days. Uh. I thought it's like ask, asking three young people what's up with elders these days, right? <laughs> Would we think of doing that? It, it might be interesting, though. Anyway. I, I not try to be funny I happily, <laughs> I'm just teasing every you. Every single time. I'm just teasing you. <laughs> I took the challenge uh, with pleasure. <laughs> so the first thing I'd like to say, to, to share is, is a story of uh, traveling to Lourd Bay this past summer. I'm uh, working on a curatorial project called Dreaming the Land. And so I'm spending a lot of time on the land. Um, and I, I travel to Lourdes Bay, which is, for you who are not familiar with the West Coast, is the northern tip of Vancouver Island. And it's on Namgish territory, so Kukwakwak territory. It's nature that is bigger than, than nature. It's, everything is big. The, the ocean is big. The sky is amazingly big. Uh, the trees are huge, the mountains are big, and you have a sense, I don't know, my, my own reality of being there, it really affected my, my perception of myself and my body. I felt really small in, in that huge landscape. I felt also quite small uh, culturally, <clears throat> because it's also big culture. It's an amazingly strong culture, so I always walk there with a lot of, of respect and almost a, a bit of trepidation I have to be very daring. Good thing I'm a Mohawk woman to dare do these things because to walk on somebody else's territory and go and work in somebody else's culture takes a lot of nerve. So I hope I'm doing this following good protocols. Anyway, I arrived on, on uh, the island of Alert Bay and the first thing I did uh, was to uh, go to the Longhouse where uh, this um, dance group, Satsala, was performing. Now, they perform only in July and August, and they perform only three times a week during that period. So it's a pretty special occasion. So I organized my travel to make sure that I was on the right ferry to arrive on time to be there. And I've experienced something really profound in experiencing this performance of the dance group, because the dance group is an Amgish dance group. It's composed of, I'd say, 15 dancers, between 15 and 20 dancers. The oldest is 21 years old, and the youngest is three. And everybody's honored in, in the dance group. Every performer is introduced to the audience in a ceremonial way, which was very moving to see those guys being introduced. And you have the matriarchs. Everybody has a position in the longhouse, so the, the men play the drum, the long wooden drum. And the women elders have a special seating. Like the, the protocol is, is quite extraordinary to watch. But what was really extraordinary in that experience was the intergenerational teaching in action and the pride that each position in that circle, the pride that each member of that dance group had of being part of, of this practice and the honor that was attached to each point of the circle, really, of life, because they're all in different position in, in that flow of life, that cycle of life. And it really, it was like an experience of, of seeing in action how we're all related, the interconnectedness between us all and between the generations. And it reminded me of how disconnected we are from each other, 
uh, how disconnected we put kids here, we put elders here, we put older people. Like we, we, we really disconnect ourselves from each other in profound ways. And sometimes unquestioned ways. We just do it because that's, it, that's how it is. And to see these young people, to see those young people, some of them were 18, 19, 20, those young teenagers, young adults, to be part of this and not feel any shame of mm -hmm. dancing with their little brother or dancing with their grandmother. There was honor in this. And it goes back to this thing of framing, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. This is a very profound frame. Um, and it frames relationship in a completely different way. So it brings back to mind, it's your image, uh, David, of, of the river, you know, and, and the circle. And just to understand, uh, if we take a step back, our own positionality in this, this flow of the seven generations before and the seven generations after. If we keep that in mind for every decision that we make or how we address people or how we relate to each other, we're just, we're just passing. And we have responsibility for the people that came before us and on, on whose shoulders we stand, and certainly for the people that are coming after us. So I think that for me, it comes down to three principal elements. One is one of values, and in this case, it's certainly indigenous values that are activated. Question of intention, and then how this is put together through protocols. And I'd like to give just uh, quickly two short examples of places where I've, I've experienced that, uh, not with the dance group, but in more educational settings. One is uh, at uh, Camosun College in Victoria. There is a program, uh, an indigenous studies program, which is a land-based program and where the uh, indigenous pedagogy is really uh, brought to the fore. So it's a land-based program. A lot of the teaching takes place on the land. It's a program where there's at least four elders attached to the program full-time. It's a program also where there's uh, ceremonies that are built in the program, and students are graded on that, and where talking circles are held. So I was thinking this conversation about taking care of each other and accommodation and all of that. When you have a circle every week, and um, you have time to spend with each other, the question of accommodation and the question of collaboration is resolved. Right. And we all take care of each other because the pedagogy of the circle does that for you. It's a very powerful tool. It looks simple, but it's a very complex and very powerful thing. And then the ceremonies are also part of the program because it's part of building the cultural capacity of the students in regards to the protocols and in regards to elders, for example. So one of the big moments in the program is when the third-year students are responsible for organizing a feast and honoring the elders. And they have to do this from beginning to end, including all the protocol part of it and the gifting, and they have to know the protocol. And because we have a community of students that is not just from Vancouver Island. There's a huge diasporic uh, indigenous communities in Victoria. Students have to learn each other's protocols mm -hmm. and sometimes have to research their own protocols because they haven't been, you know, sometimes they're far away from their own communities, their own language, their own elders. So uh, a lot of the work is about learning their own protocols and then bringing it as a gift in that space that we hold together. So that piece I wanted to just share. 
It's a space that works really well for Indigenous students, but it's, that is very, very hard on white students or non-Indigenous students. My classes usually have two-thirds uh, of students that are Indigenous and one-third usually white students. And it's a tough goal for the white students because the frame is so shifted, it's so different that they have no reference point. It takes a long time. It takes a lot of patience and collaboration and accommodation to let them come into this with ease and with patience and, and with discomfort, but to allow their discomfort to be manifest and just patiently witnessed until they can, they can feel uh, more at ease. The other program I just want to mention quickly is the Indigenous Emerging Artists Program, which is a program that was started at Open Space by Talton artist Peter Morin and Kukwakwak artist Sarah Hunt. And it's more of a mentoring program than an educational program. It's youth-led, so the, the young emerging artists are designing the program, and the mentors are there to support what they want to do. So it's not a top-down, but really it's just supporting. And it's basically a program where, again, the same principles, the same values are activated, but we also have visiting artists. Uh, so we have people like James Luna, uh, and Elenissa Bomsawin come and, and work, and Lillian came to visit once nice. with Janet Rogers. And so it's also a program where we have community involvement and where the youth, again, are put in a position of welcoming their own families and their own communities and feasting with them and activating protocols and being able to talk about their work in those conditions in a in very different supportive context and creating these contexts, these different different frames. But it's also because we live in this Western art world as well, it's giving them an opportunity to show their work in a professional context. So there's always an exhibition in the gallery at the end of the program. So I just wanted to cite those two examples as alternatives or as different ways of uh, framing the question. Thank you. Richard. Yeah, I tried to respond to the title <laughs> which went, took me in two different directions. I've written notes, but as usual, it's a palimpsest, so I can't read my own notes, so I'll, I'll try and remember. I grew up in Trinidad, as many of you know, and one of the things about that place is that people rarely, at least when I was growing up, socialize in generation-specific groups. So at any gathering, you'd find three or mostly four generations of people at the same time. So the idea of the generational splits that happens in a city like Toronto and in my circuit is a little bit odd to me. Like when a, when a friend would say, can I bring my kids? It's a, <laughs> it seems sort of like an odd thing to have to, to do that. So for me, one of the things that I fear is having re just retired from teaching is the loss, not having kids of my own, of that very intense conversations with people who are 17, 18, and 19-year-olds. But my partner and I both uh, go out of our way, in fact, to have friends that are of all ages, so sometimes you do have to go out of your way to keep that alive. In terms of, you know, the kids these days, there is a way in which academics, and that's a lot of my recent experience of working cross-generationally, thinking of something Aruna said, complain. Complain about the younger generation, complain about accommodations, etc. And I just wanted to say a couple of things. One is that I don't think we can talk about a generation. There's a way that sometimes one thinks about, yes, there's a generational, there's something that's generational. 
But one of the things that I think that's great I'm seeing among younger people uh, from, say, my generation is the kind of way that intersectionality has kind of been taken in, right? So everybody seems to be aware of the, the intersections of race, gender, sexuality, ability, etc. Although the extent to which that's not always true is striking. Last year, I taught thesis in my department, and I went around the room, and there were 20-something students, and I asked people to start by saying your name, liberate yourself, and your preferred pronoun. And about half of the students looked at me like, preferred pronoun? Like, what is that? So they hadn't actually been exposed to the question of gender identity and that people might have different gender identities, etc. That was really a kind of a wake-up call for me to think that there is, in fact, a kind of a consensus, a generational consensus that um, I thought may have been there. So here are the, like three things I'm going to throw out, and I'm really looking forward to people who are younger than to, to, to respond to some of these. So that is one thing. The other thing that I notice is a shift of working through different kinds of activist enterprises as well as in the school is a shift towards entrepreneurialism. Un can I say that word? Entrepreneurialism. <laughs> well done. <laughs> In which, again, there's a kind of attachment to money. There's a, a way in which um, there's a certain kind of personal capital, if not literal capital. But also, I think that we need to pay attention to the shifts in the economy that have happened since my generation, like 30 or 40 years, might have been doing things in which the social safety net was much stronger. That's right. Right? So there's a way in which my generation could afford, perhaps, or some of us could have afforded to do much more what one might think of as a kind of gifting of our time, right? And I was really made aware of the kind of irony of this because I was recently asked by a class in a very prestigious university, which will not be named, but in my city, <laughs> in which, in which um, I was approached to come to a class outside of my discipline, so it was not a visual arts class, and give a presentation to young students or students, graduate students who might be making films. And to talk about films and to critique the work. And at one point, I had to give a, like a lecture, so I said, is there a fee attached? And then the response was, no, we don't have a fee, but you know, we'd be very grateful and we'd take you out or something. And I actually declined. That's very unusual for me. And I wrote to the person, so there was a graduate student teaching the class and a professor who also has a professional degree. That might give you a sort of sense, who was a professional as well as a professor. And I said, you know, I don't want you to feel guilty, but you're starting out in this field, and I just want you to know that that's just not appropriate. And one of the things that I do when I write letters of invitation, I make the, the terms very clear right at the beginning so that people know um, and I didn't go on to say that I was retired and didn't have a salary. But there's a way in which I think that artists are often called upon yes, to give free labor, right? So that, I think that entrepreneurism, while it's there, and I sometimes uh, feel a little bit odd about it, it's something that I contextualize. One thing that I'm not happy about and I'm interested to hear more is like there's a kind of individualism that's operating and a kind of culture of shaming. So much, I think, <coughs> in activist communities, there is a sense of, yeah, shaming. Um, I'm not sure what the other words are, but very much a kind of scrutinizing of people saying the right thing, which can actually be very easy to do on social media, right? right? 
Whereas when you're working within a group and you have a longer term kind of relationships with people, it's harder to resort to such easy kind of tactics. So that's one thing I want to throw out there. The other thing is I think connected to that is a commitment that I'd like to see more of, but it's not just then, but question of structural change, which Lillian talked about a lot today. So I was teaching an LGBT class. It was a wonderful class. The students always make me think, and it's made me completely questioned the kind of genealogy of sexual liberation and gender identity. And I could talk about that at another time. But I'll just let, leave you to say by saying that when I left that class, I said, it was the last class I'm teaching. And one of the things that I'd like you to take into your future work are a number of principles, perhaps. And those would be criticality, that you question everything you question yourself. The other thing I said was generosity. That's connected to respect and humility of how we do that work. Principles of social justice. And I work in a number of kind of solidarity things as well. And I think that the shift towards the question of social justice, which is one of those terms, it's kind of like collaboration, right? Um, it's not quite the right term, but another one will come to replace it. But it's a different way of thinking that is not a set thing, but has to remain malleable and has to remain responsive to conditions and particular situations. So it's not a formula. And responsiveness, which is connected to that. And I, and I think as we move through the world, and this is, not, this is not from one generation to another, but it's a set of principles that I think one has to uh, apply to oneself as any of, uh, certainly for myself, I can't talk for anybody else, navigate different kinds of political situation and conditions. Um, and I find it useful to think about those things and to think of when I'm not living up to some of those things. That's it. Thanks. That's wonderful. Thanks. Thank you, Richard. Smaro. Thank you. Where to start? I, th I think actually I'm going to start at the time and space that the previous panel dealt with the past in some respects. When I started teaching as a prof, as a young prof who was in the late 80s, and all of my students, graduate and undergrad, wanted to know where I came from or where my sound came from. My accent made me stood out, right? And so the fact that I was teaching them Canadian literature and I was finding them to be entirely ignorant in those years of basic things about Canada, was really, a dis they couldn't come to terms with the fact that I would ask them, you know, how come you don't know who Louis Riel is? Or you, they hadn't heard of the Quiet Revolution, or like, I don't know, maybe the high school system has changed, but, and I haven't gone through the high school system in Canada, so I had no idea, I was really shocked. So I'm saying that because I tried to come to terms with the discomfort they created for me, but I also tried to, I developed a pedagogy of discomfort, or what I call negative pedagogy, in the sense that I was not trying to tell them how things were or what things were about, but trying to, what we were saying earlier, trying to alert them to how the way you learn and what you learn has a lot to do with the kind of knowledge produced or how knowledge comes about. I wrote about that and published about that. And so I... I began to teach, I was the first person in my department actually to teach what we used to call ethnic and native writing. I learned a lot from my own students too. I was fortunate to teach Richard Van Camp and Sarah Hunt, actually they were in the same class. And that was in, in the late 80s, early 90s. 
And I also taught a grad course about writing through race. What was it called? In the heart of the heart of darkness, the Rome exhibit. I forget. Oh, yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> just this, like a few months after it happened. And of course, I was using newspaper clips and things like that in interviews to teach. So it was a pedagogy of discomfort as much for my students as for me. And I want now to kind of make a big leap and come to the present moment where that pedagogy doesn't quite seem to work because one of the tenets of institutional structures, at least in my institution, is you have to make students feel comfortable. And so discomfort has become a non-operative word, however we understand it methodologically and, and otherwise. And the, you mentioned the example of asking your students what pronoun do you want to be called by. Actually, three years ago, I was on sabbatical, and that was around the time when the U of T, the trans group, you know, was very active, and there were all these discussions about pronouns, and we had What's his Peterson. Name? So Peterson, uh, yeah. Uh, so, and I thought, oh my God, how am I going to go back to the classroom? I was afraid of making a major faux pas in terms of pronouns because I'm the kind of person or woman who doesn't feel comfortable saying I'm a cis woman. I don't know what cis, I had to look, I was telling Christus the other day, I had to look it up in Wikipedia the first time I came across cis. <laughs> it's probably an age thing or whatever. It shows my own shortcomings. But I had myself a different sense of discomfort or anxiety about you know, offending people inadvertently and all that. I've learned how to, to deal with that. But I think that kids today, I want to, if we're talking about students, I think it's important to make a distinction between undergrads and graduate students. I was a young faculty member when professionalization of the graduate student body began, and I was a grad director at the time, so I was both resisting it and you know, kind of playing along with it. And I'm at this point in my career now where I think professionalization is, is killing students in the sense that some of them have already CVs that would make them like associate profs, but at what cost? What is the price they have to pay for that? And of course, it's the competitiveness and the culture of shame you mentioned. That is very much, I think, a factor, and I hope we have the chance to talk more about it. But when it comes to the, to the undergraduate student body, frankly, I'm, I'm at a loss. I find that some of them are very much informed. Yesterday or two days ago, I made a comment about information and knowledge that came from that experience in the classroom, the undergraduate classroom, where the, I find my students know a lot. But knowing about something doesn't mean that they have thought critically about it or they have a sense of how things come about, what the implications are. And then at the same time that they know a lot, at the same time, they're not interested in, in the past. They're not interested in the past, not only as an archive, you know, like a, a relic of the past, but how tradition has come about, which is still very much one of the things we teach, but we have to teach it in a deconstructed way. We had to show how that came about and undo it, dismantle it, bring in new voices and all that. So at this point in, in my career, where very close to retirement, where I, I feel sometimes very old that I don't get it. I don't get what this, you know, the younger students. I, I feel more comfortable mentoring at the individual level, and I've done lots of that. But with undergraduate students, sometimes I feel I'm an old foggy. I don't get it. <laughs>
and I'm, I have to make an effort to educate myself. And part of the problem is that I'm not, I guess, in the social media. But what is the title of the session? Uh, yes, uh, moving forward. Strategies I, and yes, practices to so carry I, I don't have any strategies about moving forward, except that uh, I feel myself compelled as an undergrad and grad teacher to reconsider where I stand before I, I can speak on behalf of them or, you know, for them. Thank you. Thank you so Can much. Can I ask a question? Absolutely. <laughs> Go crazy. Do you ever tell your students that you're uncomfortable oh, with yes. that? Oh, yes. Yes. Because I think that's the most important yes. thing. Is yes. I, I say to them, you know, I may trip up on your pronouns. In yes. fact, they trip I up see. on each other's pronouns too. Yes. <laughs> and that it's not natural for me. But I also tell them, just imagine yourself. I know it's hard, but in 30 years' time, yes. there will be new identities and new challenges yes. for you. And that these things aren't sitting still. That's my strategy, yeah. but what I find about a lot of things, not only about pronouns, and I find that they're not comfortable being confronted with a more a personal story, because sometimes I want them to understand that uh, the difference between like the student professor, like, I want to challenge that sense of authority and present myself as someone who you know, questions that, that role of the educator, they find that suspicious. <laughs> they don't buy it, or they don't feel comfortable. They're more comfortable when I tell them, you can, you know, you can call me Smiro. No, they, yeah. And so I, sometimes it works, but sometimes it doesn't. They just don't feel comfortable with me making myself vulnerable with their eyes. Mm. That's my experience. Mm. They feel more comfortable with a solid figure of authority. And if you, I question my authority, which I, I tend to do, it works sometimes and other times it doesn't. Uh, you know, I very much had that experience at EBC that if I, if I did anything to sort of destabilize the position of the prof, particularly a prof with a body like this, it was really, really hard on my students. Their way sometimes of responding would be to lose respect. Yes, that's what I mean. And then I, I would really... Be, I think it's got to do with gender, gender, too. Gender and age. Yes, and yes, yes. You know, yeah. and, until I hit 50, I looked like I was 20, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know what that's like, CCK? Oh, yeah, sure. I always <laughs> feel like I'm 20. Yeah. <laughs> I still feel like I'm 20. We should just open it to the floor. There's so much interesting thoughts on the table. I really appreciate these, these recognitions, France and um, Richard around how different cultural milieus have cultural, just which different cultures, because it's like this in traditional Chinese culture as well, right? That, you know, the little kids hang out with, with mom and dad and older brother, older sister, grandma, grandpa, um, and that's just, that's what it is to be in the world. And then there's something about, you know, a particular Western inheritance, which I think is also an inheritance of Western modernity, right, that wants to fragment. And we inherit very much those kinds of structures. I do think it's, it's not just Western, because there are many parts of the West in which people actually have those kind of relationships. Right, right. It, it's, uh, perhaps North America, yeah, perhaps it's, it's about than, modernity. Because yeah. I, you know, after I left Trinidad, I went to high school in Ireland. Yeah. And in Ireland, because all of my siblings had studied there oh, yeah. and had Shani, had long relationships. Oh, yeah, Shani Muto and I have yes. similar yeah. uh, backgrounds. Is that, yeah, my brother's friends that I, when I moved to Ireland, 
he was in relation to a lot of Irish families, and that's the way that people yeah, also yeah. work. Oh, so it was interesting because I moved from Trinidad to Ireland, which you think is very far, but that break was less traumatic for me than moving to Toronto mm -hmm. wow. from Ireland to Toronto. Wow. I mean, I think about it as connected to industrialization yeah. and, the, and, you know, yeah. and the, the needs of contemporary capital to sell one of each washing machine, stove, whatever, yeah, to these sort of like compartmentalized, the smaller the better family unit because then you can sell more stoves and more cars and more. Mm -hmm. And so I think about it as connected to that. But I and creating a group of the teenage, the teenagers, right, and creating, to which you can sell a, a lot of new stuff, yeah, right? Right, right. A whole uh, yeah, group of new consumers of right. new things. Exactly. You're, you're absolutely right. I, and I'm sorry, I didn't mean the monolithic West, but just thinking about, I guess, because it's the structures that we inherit in the, in the universities that we teach in, where these generational divides do seem quite profound and... I don't know how one breaks the hold of that. How is that me. connected <laughs> then? But how is that connected? And some of you, David, I know you are working on decolonizing the institution. So right. is, is there any connection between some of these ideas and principles and frames and the academy? Is this conciliable? Is there conciliation possible there or no? I should open the floor. Hey, yeah. Friends. Stem the first time person asked to bring a child into the room in the studio, we could accommodate that better. There's not a health thing, but it just changes everything. It's sweet. But the institution seems pretty stable, you know, in wanting to atomize people, as you say, and not engage families. That's in the classroom. What I am seeing, you know, especially at First Nations University, is challenging to that because the environment is used. It's not living on the land kind of thing. Well, that's not true. They, Butchered a buffalo a little while ago and uh, used the, all the parts that was amazing. But they're using the spaces in different ways. And someone was talking about studios. I think Lillian was talking about for the four months of the summer, we bring community members. Some pay if they can pay, and often they're invited as guests. And there's different ways, but it's not, it's an addition to rather than a transformative thing that I've seen so far. I wouldn't know how to do it. I love the examples you gave, though that at a college level they're able to accommodate sometimes better those smaller situations and I just I can just picture what you described perfectly and it's been a long fight though I mean there's yeah. been people fighting for this it's been incremental yeah. and it's been really hard to make that happen but it's there and and there's precedence right there's good examples to show like Dwayne McDonald at the U of A needed to teach a course in the 13 moon cycles following the 13 moon cycle. Yeah, so and it took him years to get it so that he could offer outside of the semester system right. that people are gonna engage for a whole, you know, on the land. And, and he did it. It's beautiful, um, tenable, I don't know. But uh, I think all these examples change our minds a bit and show the paucity of what we're doing right now. And when we feel discontent, you know, are we gonna let ourselves age out? <laughs> or do we fight again, keep kicking? <laughs> I'm not sure. It's a very stressful one. The other piece I'd like to lay on the table, too, thinking about the examples that you have given, Francis and Richard, which are beautiful and family-oriented. But for those of us coming out of queer culture, and also those of us coming out of a sort of the, the atomized West, if you like, insofar as we do, the relations up and down the generations are not necessarily familial. Mm. 
right? And yet we've inhabited other formations. And I mean, I think about, you know, back in the day when and were together and they had the little cow stone, which is where still lives, and where there would be lots of intergenerational hanging out. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was a space in which I learned a lot and very much a community space that felt familial, although it wasn't blood relation. Mm-hmm. And we don't do that anymore. I don't do that anymore, partly because, um, and this actually gets at some of the things I think that Smaro was raising, partly because I'm quite concerned about, even though I don't think I'm particularly formal with my students, there are certain formal distances that I maintain because I don't want, I don't either want to be inappropriate or enter into relationships that might be perceived as relationships of impropriety. And I think that's good that we're, you know, like the Me Too moment is important. It's important that we ask those questions about power relations across generation. And yet, I miss something of that time when we worried about it less. And I wonder if it's possible, you know, to maintain the joy of being together, whether it's like learning properly or just hanging out, but it was always pedagogical too, right? But yet be able to sort of maintain hold of, you know, there are certain boundaries that are there for good reason. Yeah, maybe I'll just say, maybe I'll just say that and, and kind of throw it up as a, you know, as a question of recognizing a, a different formation now than the one that I came up through. Non-familially, like not, right? Yeah, well, we're kind of jumping from one thing to another, but they're all kind of interconnected at a certain level. But with regard to your last point, in my experience, given the complexity of the student body, I find that sometimes authority signifies differently for different students, depending on the cultural backgrounds. Yes. For some of them, authority is something you have worked very hard to gain in terms of having access to education, in terms of all of that. And I, for example, I come from a culture where to be a professor is very respectable. And when I told my mother years back that I called her and said, Mom, guess what? I got a job as a professor. She said, but I've been telling my friends for a long time now you were a professor because I was teaching as an assistant. It's, and I invited her to come to my class. I was in Victoria to see me teach because to her was such... You know, I was the first person to go to high school, let alone become a professor, right? But she, she enjoyed it, but I, she didn't understand why I would not stand behind the podium, yeah. walk around, and sit on the table. Her sense of exercising my authority. The three said, like, you are the professor. Like, how do you, you know, you profess. You have to have a broad language. But for others, you know, so authority signifies differently, right? right? Yes. That's just one example. But, and I think it's important to have a sense of, especially as women, to have the sense of when we need to sometimes to exercise authority. Absolutely. I felt yeah. I had to do that as a young academic. You know, now it's different, but I was very young and I had an accent. You know, the students would talk about my clothing and not my teaching, or they would say, how can she know about Canada? She's not Canadian, or we don't understand her accent. You know, so if you didn't understand my accent, what the f- did you do all year in my class? You know, <laughs> like, but those, it's, so you had to exercise your authority in a certain way. Of course, right? yeah, yeah, absolutely. And now it's different. Now I find myself constantly, especially vis-a-vis what's been happening in the field and generally uh, in the Canadian cultural context in the last few years, I find myself a bit, 
I don't know what, I don't want to say on the defensive, but I've become more silent, less feisty, more careful in terms of what I say, when I say it, when I speak. And I don't feel comfortable with those changes in me. Mm. But that's where I'm at right now, mm. at the crossroads, as a result of some of the cultural political changes I've been witnessing mm. and still trying to figure out how to make an intervention or how to speak or how to respond. And so I'm, I'm trying to slowly come out of this kind of mm. period of silence or, or meditation. I'm, I haven't figured it out yet. I agree with Marwin that this, you know, I haven't written anything. I, I wrote a lot and I wrote a lot of stuff that was like kind of interventions into difficult issues. And it's a little scary to do that now mm-hmm. because, Why? well, it seems that the atmosphere is so judgmental and the response is so quick and there seems to be less space for positions that are tentative, less resolved. It seems that one has to have a resolved position um, in order to speak. So the responses are so vehement. So I would say it, I find them moralistic and self-righteous quite often. And we came through so many different political struggles at so many levels by creating and learning how to develop oppositional practices and discourses. And now oppositional criticism has become this solid thing that either you have to embrace the tone and the tenor and the content to 100% or you're out in the boonies, you're wrong, you this and that and that. And so I, yeah, that's what I was referring to. I, I, I find it disabling, very disabling. I absolutely hear what you're saying. I mean, I wonder if part of the additional difficulty for folks who are coming from indigenous locations or POC locations or quote-unquote ethnicized locations where our histories are still very much in the making and in order to do the research to kind of work out, I guess I don't really mean history, I mean genealogy, where to do the genealogical work necessarily means a certain tentativeness, right? Like your beautiful trailer yesterday for Nang by Nang, where you're sort of testing out particular kind of, uh, particular historical relationships with this idea of a queer straight woman. And then if you can put it out there in a way that's generative, and it's in the direction of opening a historical or a, a genealogical imagination, to an audience that's open to that, that's one thing. But if it's putting it out there into a field that tends to reify quickly and pass judgment quickly, then the film and the figure of your cousin does fundamentally different kind of political work that you can't control, Mm -hmm. right? And I don't know what one does with that because it sort of seems to me so important to be able to bring back our cousins and to have the figuration as open in some ways, and yet remain political. And so it's a, there are contradictions that, are, that have to do with the formation of public. And the, that formation of public seems to be shifting in ways that are not as productive as they were. I mean, I think there seems to be less space for generosity. And I have mm-hmm. to underline that it's not about generations. It's not about age. It's about a moment. Mm-hmm. So in my recent political experience, mm-hmm. Many of the people who are 
guilty, I would say, I would use that word, the G word, of <laughs> the kind of viciousness, we're not young people. Yes. Mm-hmm. yes. And I do think it is partly correspondence, say like on email or on Facebook, in which you don't actually have to face the person, in which it's less dialogic, it's less a back and forth, you, you make pronouncements. I'm guilty of that too. When I write an email, I can be far more stern <laughs> than if I have to like actually be in touch with someone. I think it's about our, our lines of communication, which is why I do think, for me, it's important if I look forward of organizing, is to organize in physical groups. Yeah. So we need to physically be, be in the room together. Yeah, this is uh, it, it's something I've been thinking about a lot and don't know how to, I haven't fully grappled with, but everything you're talking about with identity politics and how you've put a lot of these discussions front and center, and so there's a lot of articulation of these things is really important, but at least from what I can tell, like this lack of respect for historical context and the direction that we're going in, there seems to be less consideration for sort of like a class consciousness and maybe that's 40 years of neoliberal union busting and other stuff but um, it kind of seems like these new values that have come in don't have inherently a direction to them and and that kind of aimlessness is maybe to my mind a little bit dangerous like when you think about how green capitalism can function how rainbow capitalism can accommodate because it's it's able to bring this stuff in very easily without having to reckon with social values like in, in terms of where we're headed and like do you, do you have any thoughts on that i don't know it's not really a, a directed question but I, I often wonder about that are you suggesting that we're in a moment like you, you were openness about... is more co- is more costly because there's so much at stake is that what you mean yeah because we don't feel that like talking about intergenerational hanging out like without that sort of feeling of togetherness across some of these boundaries, it does atomize people in that way. And so it becomes a lot of virtue signaling online rather than productive discussions because there isn't that common thread. Yeah, right. May I ask a question? What does atomize mean? <laughs> like you in your corner, me and mine. You stay over there because we have these differences. I stay over here. And so we're, we're less inclined towards Quite a kinship, being together in the same room. So it's know. atomic war. Mm, it is a kind of atomic war. <laughs> That's great. It is. That's great. Yeah. I mean, I see it in terms of, an, at this moment, as part of an affect economy, where the individual is reduced to always talking about, well, how do you feel, rather than trying to account for a collective that you're part of because there's anxiety of speaking for somebody else. So I can only speak for myself. And yet, we have all these mechanisms that do that anyways, and there's a distinctness between that. But in the university, it's when you're treating a person as an individual primarily, so not bringing in families. That's what I, when I used the word atomized earlier. Okay, so you're talking about atomic war on families, <laughs> right? Okay. Well, we were following, it's interesting, because I was thinking of a metaphor, we were talking about these collectives that Franz was talking about, and then we were talking about the family, meaning like the family, dad, mom, and kids, and then I was thinking, here at the university, they're not even allowed in, so it's like, yeah, one person. Okay. That's all, I don't you know, think it's anything fancy. Okay, so you're talking about Atomic war on families. <laughs> <laughs> right? okay. Well, we were following, it's interesting, because I was thinking of a metaphor where we were talking about these collectives that Franz was talking about, and then we were talking about 
the family, meaning like the family of dad and kid, mom and kids. And then I was thinking here at the university, they're not even allowed in, so it's like, yeah, out of one person. Okay. That's all. Yeah. I don't you know, think anything fancy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I see Aruna's hat, but could I just respond oh first? Yes, absolutely. Because I do yeah. think that one of the things, I, I think there is a sensitivity around, for example, you raised the question of class, around these things, but it often seems to be, again, around a kind of personal capital in a hierarchy of virtue, mm. to use your term, exactly. rather than towards a project. And that's the thing that worries me. Now, one of the things that's interesting is that projects haven't always been stable. And there haven't always been projects on the table. One of the things that's so exciting, I think you talked about crying, looking at what was happening in Montreal yesterday. And so there is a project now that many people, I think, will be excited about. I've seen, you know, I don't know, more was another one that everybody got excited about. And I don't know if we can sustain. I think one of the things is to think that something fails because it moves like we kind of like it's not central anymore. I, I don't think in that way. I think that's all building towards something. But one of the things I think is somebody said, how do you don't get jaded? And I don't think it's, it's about, it's not really about optimism. It's about, you got to keep doing the work. Like yes. the world is a process. There's no, like, I don't think in apocalyptic terms, it's not going to end. We just have to keep doing the work. I know, Runa, you want to say something, but I just want to add something because all of this conversation for me, what it just keeps reinforcing is like, we have to remember that life exists outside of academia. Mm -hmm. And it seems like, I don't know, like we yeah. forget that life exists outside of institutions. Because I can think of so many communities, projects, locations where people are doing really groundbreaking stuff right now. And that's why I asked my question earlier about how do we reconcile this conversation with the project that universities across this country have of decolonizing themselves and taking seriously indigenization? Like, for me, it doesn't, there's a huge contradiction here because it seems that this academia is so, I don't know, immutable. I don't know, I'm listening to you. You live it every day. It seems like you can't change that. You can't change the relationship of authority. You can't build relationality or I don't know, like how do we reconcile how the way the institution academia functions right now with a project many... of decolonizing itself? Or is it even possible? And if it's not, then let's stop paying lip service to this. No, I, I think you're putting your finger on something hugely important, but I would say that there have been over the years and now different ways in which the academy is permeated and shaken up by communities, different communities. I don't think that the academy, it does operate at a certain level as the kind of ivory tower we've all, you know, it's always been. But at the same time, there are ways in which it spills over, it's, uh, it's permeable, and I can feel that, I can see that. Uh, I think, like Larissa, so many, Aruna, so many people have done important work that involved the university as a community and as an institution, because it's not only just an institution, it's also community. But there are ways in which the two come together, or the, you know, like if we think in this kind of, I don't want to create a binary situation, but it's possible and it's been happening, but not enough. And I think it's something we have to learn to do more of. 
And I think as as the institution moves towards decolonizing, there are people who are bringing in other practices. So one of the things that Peter Moran teaches a class, his classes are very different to the way classes were taught before. There's a really exciting younger Cambodian Canadian prof at OCAD who called Emini Men, who's been doing things. And like he moves his class, he says, "Okay, today I'm going to treat you to dim sum." And he takes the whole, this is a grad class, of course. Yes. <laughs> he, he takes the class <laughs> and they meet and they have a different conversation over food. Lisa That's Myers, nice. when she was yeah. teaching at a grad, would feed her students, mm-hmm. right? But so, Roy used to do that. Yeah. I, 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 I do, do that sometimes too. Actually, I did that with students. Roy. We remember yeah. we had a uh, Roy and I collaborated yes. two, three years in a row. He was teaching at SFU, I was at two vacant undergraduate classes, and in one of them we invited you and Rita. Rita. And we had, uh, you know, takeout in my house, and we did the same thing in Vancouver where I would go. So there, I mean, we have done lots of that. But I actually used to do a bit more of that. And then the university came up, you do know, you're not allowed to take the students outside of the classroom for security reasons. Yeah. And that kind of discourse. Yeah. So I stopped doing that, except for my grad students. Right. But in, in the old days, I used to bring my undergraduates to my house the end of the term yeah, or yeah. do things like that, but not anymore because I'm, you know, I'm, I'm afraid. I mean, afraid, I don't want to kind of create the wrong sense of, you know, fear, but you have to be careful because students can themselves, I don't know, I don't want to go there. It's a volatile situation. I want to ask you about, okay, can I, we just put the passer on the table, but let's have Arena's question first and then I want to hear about that. I want to address way back. I want to address <laughs> what Larissa said about family and community because my sense of the past you know my first decade or so here in Calgary is much the same that in terms of the arts community and the writing community and so forth there were a lot of gatherings and there was a lot of ways in in which we supported each other and yet I think my sense of that I feel nostalgic for that and a lot of what people are talking about in terms of the so institutional life is my sense of that is, is I am now older, too ill, and too fatigued, I suppose, to engage in the organizing energy that that takes. So um, in a sense, life has just gone on. And I think some of the cultural, the cultural energy has changed. Mm-hmm. But in terms of what we're doing here or elsewhere outside in our community work, I'm not sure that things have changed as much as I, I think I'm hearing in the sense that I don't know that I know what my students are thinking or feeling. I know what I can see in a kind of hidden curriculum in the class, but I had some of my worst experiences around racism early in my career. Racism like directed at me mm. very early in my career here and at UBC. And have never, not, not recently experienced that kind of back back lash. So I, I'm not nostalgic for that. Um, and I would say that in terms of that indigenization, decolonization, I express the problem as the classroom. That what we need to do is not focus on curriculum but say like what is it we're doing in our classrooms why do we think course outlines are essential why why is it that we still stick ourselves in spaces that are unhealthy but that's such a fundamental change i think that's why 
you know, whether it's high school or whether it's college or university, that that is a, a huge <coughs> issue because we're, we're, at least I am, I can't disattach myself from the things that I'm told that I have to do. I can play with it. Yes. I can I can say I'll negotiate this with you, but under the rule of law, the yeah. <laughs> the university, I have to do this. Yeah. And it's the same with things like accommodations and so forth. And I think that process of whether it's collaboration or negotiation, I'm certain that it's more possible than I make it out to be in in my head. In terms of that generosity, and in terms of that ethical relationality, which I think I know how to engage in, in many contexts, but in the classroom, I'm thinking it's about time for me to retire if I haven't learned that in 26 years. Anyway, that's, that's it. Yeah, I was just thinking you mentioned the sort of accommodation thing before, and I was, I was thinking about that as well, the sort of shift. And I was thinking, well, you know, in some ways those rules are there to protect students from the power that the instructor has, but it's like immediately deferring that power to like the greater power <laughs> of the institution, right? And like, it sounds like what you're saying is like just feeling the weight of that power like on you and over the classroom, what's written down in the curriculum, what's written like we need to do this and this and that. I mean, I wonder, I, like I don't know either because I do want to stay here that I don't push those buttons a lot. But like someone who was here not long ago, who's coming back for a visit, <laughs> um, didn't care, and he was like, "I'm gonna give all my undergrad students A's because I don't believe in grading." And he would just tap on the fingers, you know, what I'm talking about. And then, yeah, and and then we get tapped on the fingers, and that was it, and continued on. I mean, that's just one example, but there are different ways that people do that. And I just wonder if, like, the perceived powers that be are, like, we give them so much power by just following the rules of law, I don't know. But it's scary. Like, it is scary, like, and I get it, and I don't do it either, so I'm not trying to, like... Well, and I think it's also that certain certain bodies, including professorial bodies, are much more subject to discipline than others, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but it's still a good reminder, Rebecca, thank you. Yeah. I just wanted to say, I hear what Ron's was saying about being frustrated with the contextualizing and all this within the university, but I want to say as, uh, as someone who's been out of deinstitutionalized for almost 20 years, that one of the greatest joys I have, that I most have a great deal of gratitude for students who come up to me at some event and say, Oh, you were my teacher 30 years ago or so and so, and I'm doing this because of you. It's yeah, pretty awesome. Or goes out and goes to prison. I mean, That's so I, great. No, no, no. I, no, 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 no. <laughs> I mean, I want to harken back to Christo's thing about the work does the work. Yeah. yeah. yeah the practice does the work. So we're involved in a pedagogical exercise, and we're talking about decolonization. Maybe we don't plan on it, but if, we're, if we work at it well enough, those people are going to go out and do some work. So I think, feel grateful for that. Yeah. Feel grateful for the fact that you're actually creating. It's not a closed system. If it actually, they end up doing something else, a lot of it. Thanks, Fred. That's important to remember. Mm. Chris, and then I really want to hear about the PASA 
Well, I just think that I kind of concur with what Camille was saying. And although it's kind of easy to blame social media, I think, and that's notwithstanding what Richard was talking about, about the vehemence and the instantaneity of it, too, mm -hmm. and the fact that you can not have to really engage with a person. You can just call out, call out culture. You can call out anybody, and you can call, call them out not just vehemently, sometimes violently, sometimes to the point of bullying and scaring and, and threatening people's lives. But I also think that we're in a certain historic moment, and we can't, we can't negate that. We're in a moment where the values that we believe in in this room are not in favor in the world. And we just have to look historically. When that happens, we start to shoot ourselves. Mm. There's this famous metaphor of when the left forms a, a firing squad, it forms a circle. And you know, that take the movie. I've never heard that before. Yeah, it's an old, old people's thing. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, <study> boy. <laughs> I'm old enough to remember living in the 60s. There's a few of us in that space. I lived in Berkeley in, in 1970. And the world was our oyster. We were going to change the world. Everything was going to change. Well, it didn't change, or it changed in some ways. And now we're in a very retrograde, repressive, turning backwards, Trumpitis kind of world, where populism and right-wing ideas and homophobia and, and you know, hatred of women, misogyny is also back on the table. So in that circumstance, we have no power or very little power. So when we want to act out and we want to be angry, we're angry at each other. To me, mm -hmm. this is absurd. I, I don't understand why people are doing this. We need to find relational ways, using the five R's, using other methodologies, of being able to connect with one another to find out what we have in common. I guarantee you that any two people in this room, any two, regardless of how different they may be, if they were going to have a beer, have a cup of coffee, they can find common ground. And when you do that, then you do that with other people, and then you're in the beginning of organizing. And when you're in organizing, you can actually do something about the material conditions of the world. I know that sounds terribly old-fashioned and kind of communist and everything else, but I still, I, still, I still believe it's possible. Progressive people have to stop firing at each other. All of us. Yeah. I've heard you, CCK, and I want to follow up on that. So Please. hang on a bit. Because in my understanding, my experience of any kind of progress that we've gained, We've always, it has always made a difference when liberals weigh in, right? And um, I think we're suffering from their lack of participation and I presence. Totally agree. Totally agree. And in the academy, I've always contended it's not the administration, it's the faculty that's causing all the pain. I mean, you think if faculty wanted a human rights office, there wouldn't be one. You think if faculty wanted women's study, there wouldn't be one. But no, it's the, the divisions in faculty, white supremacy, that is at play and is right there with us. So in some ways we can say, you know, it's there, but it's part of the work, unfortunately. I always say we should get mental coat and fee for doing it. But we're going to have to reach out a little bit more to um, liberals and potential liberals. Uh, you know, some people you just can't work with. And to get them, to call them into account and, you know, whichever way, the gentle way or the whatever way, 
is to get them on board yeah. and, to, and to get them to front some of these things, to get them to be our ventriloquist. Unfortunately, that's the situation. So that's my country. But don't you think that all of these issues, as I've watched people in my life and been in various groups, the one thing that strikes me is that when there is trouble, it's about control. So there will be one person in a group or one person on a faculty who feels as though they deserve or whatever the right to control. And that that very impulse of wanting to control other people is the problem that we have to face. Because until all of us are able to divest ourselves of that necessity to control other people, that's what the actual conflict is about. It's not so much conflict between us as human beings. It's conflict about power and control. And most of the people in the United States who voted for Trump are concerned because they feel they have lost control. Mm -hmm. That's right. Mm -hmm. and, they, and they can't understand they never had any control in the first place. I mean, that's the, the basic lesson of life is you have no control ever about anything. I mean, we have assumptions, right? This room will stay the way it is. The ceiling's not going to crash in. We will all die from these horrible lights and these terrible chairs. Yeah. But, you know, but we don't have any control. We literally have no control over the uncomfortable chairs and the horrible lights, right? And the fact that there's no way to see the world from here, you know, it's like all the walls. So that's what I see as the problem that we need to address as communities is to, to divest people of the idea that they need to control. You definitely need to control yourself, and that's a major full-time job, but controlling other people is, is the place where we always come into conflict. I mean, every time I have ever had an ugly incident with someone, it was because they were trying to control me. You know, and I, it took me like 25 years to figure that out. You know, I'd get into these big fights with people and not understand that what was happening is they wanted me to do this, and I had no idea that that's what they wanted, and so I was doing this over here, and, you know, there, there's conflict in that, you know. So I have no idea how to stop anyone from trying to control other people because it's so hard for me to try and only control myself, right? <laughs> you know, it's, a, it's a really a big job to, to divest yourself of that necessity to run things or, or to have this power, which is actually very illusory. The, the issue of all throughout, all organizations, every place I've ever been, that's what it came down to, is that conflict about Who's going to run the show, you know? And sometimes it looks like racism, sometimes it looks like sexism, sometimes it looks like all kinds of other things, but the real issue underneath all of those is that one of someone wants to control. And my sense is that fear is behind that. The operation of control is fear. So it's very hard to figure out how to deal with that because when someone is frightened, you know, they're a fox against the wall, you know. There's no, no real way to communicate through that kind of fear. 
So I would really like us to figure this out. And the right wing is the right wing is exploiting those fears. Yes, exactly. Every day. Yes, and we have to get smarter. And to corporations too. I thought they're the right wing as far as I'm concerned. But yeah. We we are at time. Yeah. But I really, really do want to hear about the figure of the passer because I feel like <laughs> this is something that you've been thinking about. Well, this figure who moves between yeah. worlds. Actually, it's something that has emerged in my practice and it's also taken me about 25 years to recognize the pattern <laughs> because I kept doing this over and over again without really understanding what it is that yeah. I was doing. Right. And I think it's connected to the fact that uh, I have mixed ancestry, so I can understand both cultures actually mm. quite well mm. um, and the fact that I'm bilingual so mm -hmm. I can navigate between two languages and I'm learning a little bit of Ghanaian Geha the fact that I've been traveling extensively so moving from communities to communities and it's a very humble thing because the image of the passeur is the that person that has an, a boat a canoe that can bring people from one side of the river to the next. Mm -hmm. And it's a very simple task. It's a very humble task in a way. Once they've passed on the other side, you're not responsible for them. They can go on their own exploration. And then you bring people from that side to the other side. Mm -hmm. So in a way, it's like cultural translation or worldview translation, but without judgment. Mm. Just, it's, it's a very compassionate place mm. or a very humble place. Mm. You're not judging anybody. Mm. They get in your canoe and you take them for that journey of passing on the other side mm. and whatever they get from that. So I just realized that in my curatorial work, for example, that's exactly what I do all the time. Mm. And that's why I take people where they're at. Mm. You don't judge who's coming in your canoe. Mm. They, they're there. Mm. So that's good enough for me <laughs> to just take them and, and take them on a journey that I'm proposing. So that, that image of, of, and maybe that's a way of like honoring, you honor people when you take them in your canoe in a way, just by the fact that you accept them in that space. It goes back to your embrace this morning. You made that gesture, you welcome them. What you do is the first thing you have to do is you keep them safe from harm. Exactly, and then it goes to what you were just talking about, Christos, is like you take their fear down. You appease yeah. the fear. Yeah. You say, "Okay, you're safe. You're in my canoe for a while. I'm gonna, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna get you through this river. We'll go on the other side, and you don't have to fear. You can, you're okay here for now. Then it's your journey after that. But and then when people, when people's fear go down, and when you honor who they are, whoever they are, there's a feeling of connectedness, and that's what we have to build on. I think. You know, that's exactly what I tell people about my perspective on taking people out on hikes. Mm. First of all, you keep them safe from harm. Mm. You're with them so that their, uh, their, their defense mechanisms or their discomfort goes way down. And you show them that it's okay to be this way. And then you enjoy having something to eat out by the trail and all the while you're just in the forest mm. or you're on the shore and Nature takes care of the rest, but they have that experience mm -hmm. with you. And I, and I know for me as a storyteller, one of the first things we have to do as a storyteller is to make the place safe. Yeah. 
make the storytelling circles safe for the stories. And then when the stories come out, the stories come out and, and they do their work. Yeah. <laughs> and then they go back in <laughs> and keep it for the next time. That's beautiful. That is the mo that's the perfect note, I think, <laughs> yes, I to end this panel yes. on. Thank, thank you all three so much. enjoyed the final podcast from our Wisdom Council series, featuring Franz Trepanier, Richard Fung, and Smaro Cambarelli. I'm Paul Minier, and you're listening to Tea House Talks. The panel discussion you just heard was recorded during the Tea House Symposium, Wisdom Council. Tea House recognizes the generous support of the Canada Research Chairs Program and the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council. We also appreciate the support of the Faculty of Arts and the Department of English at the University of Calgary, where our offices are housed, as well as the guidance of Mark Stuckel at the Taylor Family Digital Library. Tea House is run by Larissa Lai, Mahmoud Ababne, Rebecca Jelaine, Paul Minier, Joshua Whitehead, Ryan Stern, Mark Lynch, and Marjorie Rogunda. Our music is Monarch of the Streets by Loyalty Freak Music. Stay tuned for the next episode of Tea House Talks. For more on the work of Tea House, including symposia, panels, and readings, please check out our website at www.tiahouse.ca. If you'd like to be in touch, send us an email at tiahouseyyc at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. <laughs>